Good morning, everyone, um, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay, and I'll be the moderator for our presentation this morning. Today is Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. The share ID for the share ID numbers for Friday, July 1st are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting, that number is 19,126. That's 19126. And on Friday for the 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting, that number is 19,127. That's 19127. This morning, A Vision for You presents Freedom Isn't Free. The big book teaches us that we have a twofold illness the allergy of the body, and the obsession of the mind. And while we certainly acknowledge that the, uh, the allergy of the body is a problem, there's, there's no question it is, we, we learn that the far more insidious aspect of our disease is the twist of the mind, the mental obsession. In fact, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that the big book says is that the main problem centers in our mind rather than our body. So if we are to be released from this bondage, if, if, if we're going to be, become untethered from this, what is a deadly progressive obsession, the big book instructs us that we must have a revolutionary spiritual transformation. And how's that going to come about? You know, how, how is that going to come to fruition? Well, through the implementation of the 12 steps, that's what we learn. And, and when we do that for a lifetime, what happens? Well, the big book tells us very nicely in the chapter, there is a solution. And uh, it says that the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. It goes on to say the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. And joining us this morning, we have three recovered compulsive overeaters who will bring their stories to life, their, their experiences about, you know, being enslaved by this disease, not only with compulsive overeating, but with the character defects, the ideas, the emotions, attitudes, and philosophies which used to dominate them and held them in, in this, this bondage. And each panelist is going to share how the action steps four through nine in particular transformed them to freedom. They have been changed. And each speaker will, will speak for approximately 15 minutes. And our three panelists that we that, that are going to be speaking this morning include Stephanie K. from Missouri and Lois P. from New York, and then Cheryl A. from Massachusetts. And it's with great pleasure that, um, that we'd like to welcome our first panelist to the line. Good morning, Stephanie K. from Missouri. Hey, thank you, Larry. Thank you, everybody. Um, Thanks for being out there this morning. Um, I'm so grateful. Let's get the gratitude um, first and foremost um, said. So first of all, I'd like to thank my higher power, God. It's my, it's my higher power, just God, um, for just everything. I mean, I owe God everything. And then my sponsor, um, 
she's just wonderful and she hangs in there with me when some crazy times when the two and a half years. Um, and then I just like to thank everybody that has ever helped me. I mean, all of you help me each and every day on a vision for you when I listen uh, to the rebroadcast of it. And I just get so much from everybody's story. I mean, we can always learn from the newcomer up to somebody who's been in program for decades. And um, none of us are, um, you know, too good or too whatever not to learn from somebody. Um, and so we have that humbleness of spirit and heart. Um, I, my name is Steph Kay. Um, I am in here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I'm speaking in my closet because it's a busy morning. And if you hear a soft-coated wheat and terrier, that's my dog, Finn. Um, just, she's just chasing squirrels and rabbits this morning. So praise be to God for, you know, we can just sit in our closets and we have this technology to reach thousands across the world. I was listening to right before, and there's somebody in Costa Rica and somebody in Canada and it's just amazing what God has provided for us. And we should, I should be so grateful, um, and I am. Anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself first. Um, I came into program, oh, it must have been about 2016, maybe 2015. And then prior to that, I, I walked into program in 1990 as a 20, 20 21-year-old, and I walked back out. Um, I thought everybody was crazy. And uh, I just thought, this is not for me. Um, I am a compulsive overeater. I know that I admitted it, but I don't think I was ready. Um, I was certainly not desperate, and I thought I could do other things. And so I spent the 27 years, you know, outside of program um, trying to figure it out. And it took me 27 years to walk back into the rooms of OA. And it still took me another 10 months of messing around and um, trying to figure it out on my own. And finally, uh, in January of 2017, I relented. I said, I can't handle this. This is way too much for me. And God provided me the perfect sponsor. Um, I didn't think she was so perfect at the time because I didn't like her that much. Uh, but she was confronting that beast, the addiction. And uh, now I think the world of her. And she's such a blessing to myself, but my gosh, to the world. You heard her. You've heard of her on, on Vision for You. And she's... Um, just the one, most wonderful person. Um, I started off at like 280 pounds. I got clean and sober um, February 6th of 2017. Um, my life back then was about, here's how it looked. I was 27000 in debt. I was eating um, about 900 to to $1,000 above what I made every month. Um, my son was uh, out in California at the time, and he had gone on a Bender, he was into drugs and alcohol. Um, I started joining another program for the friends and family members of alcoholics and drug addicts. Uh, my daughter was just getting through her sophomore year in high school, and she spent all of her time in her room. She was just isolating, and I consider her probably the forgotten child. Um, and my husband and I were not getting along, obviously. Um, we were headed towards divorce. Everything was falling apart. We were blaming each other for my son's addiction. Um, and I had joined another program for the friends and families of alcoholics and drug addicts. And that's the beginning of my recovery. Um, so that one program said, you know, maybe you should try another program um, for, you know, um, trying to deal with yourself. 
So I joined another 12-step program <laughs> to deal with myself, and they looked at me, and they go, yeah, you need something else for your food addiction. And I went, what? I don't have a food addiction. <laughs> yes, I do. And so I walked into OA, and everything changed. So I did get clean and sober in um, February 6th of 2017. It's my what I call dry date. And I lost 120 pounds and maintained that weight loss. Um, it's not really the maintaining of the weight loss. It's more of like the soul recovery um, because I was so lost. And my soul was lost. I was not willing to follow a God. Um, when I first got into OA, I didn't want to really hear about God. Um, I thought I could still handle everything on my own. But to come to believe to it, no. Here are my because my character defects, the selfishness, the things I have to have my own way, everything has to turn out my own way. I need to have total control of the money, the job, the house. My attitudes were very pessimistic. I was very fault-finding, gossipy. I held things against people like forever. I am the historian of fault-finding and um, finding defects of character in others. Um, the tiniest things got on my nerves. I kid you not, I used to yell at God for the wind because the wind was blowing too much. It was, you know, messing up with my whatever I was doing outside. I, I, I was insane. <laughs> I mean, who, who rages against the wind? Um, I was a road rager. <laughs> I was also like a rager against, um, like this year we're celebrating the 4th of July and I was an overnight worker for the best part of 21 years of my 30-year career in TV news. And I would be insanely, like, getting in my car, riding around in my neighborhood, and screaming at the people that were setting up the fireworks because they were, they were messing with my sleep, you know. And, I mean, I've gotten a new schedule and everything, and that's a miracle in itself. But, I mean, this is, like, maybe the third year that I have not been bothered by um, fireworks. You know, A, I'm sleeping at night, but B, I really don't care. I'm not even really paying attention to them anyway. But that's how I was. Um, I was very paranoid. Um, I was very think I was thinking, like, a lot of people were always out to get me, so I was going to get them first. Um, I was always the victim. People were always in the wrong. And I was also the martyr. Oh, my gosh. Mother martyr, right? Um, everything was always done to me. Um, I was the good person. I mean, have you ever pulled out that podcast from, you know, hell every morning like I used to? I would go over what my parents had done, what my coworkers had done. I would recite, you know, the martyrdom creed. Um, and everything was always... Well, when I was done with that podcast and listening to it in my own head, um, I was always better. And everybody else was always worse. And that's how I would start my day. And so when you go out with that mindset to the world, you also get it back, but then you also give it out. And you're not a very pleasant person. So how did God release me from this? Um, I started with the big book um, back in 2017, each and every day for an hour a day. I would talk with my sponsor, and we would go from the jacket cover <laughs> to the jacket cover, and we would go through the book. 
And um, for me, we said of steps four through nine, yes, very much so. Go through steps four through nine, but I want to hit on something really quick. The big release for me was actually back in, I'm backing this up a little bit in step three. Um, make sure you take a good step three. Have you really made a decision to turn your life and your will over to the care of God? That means for me, I will hand over and start trusting God each and every day. I make sure that I revisit step three every single day. Because when you hit your feet on the floor, I first say, thank you, God. Then I go to the restroom. (laughs) And then I take it, you know, because you can mess up a lot of times between your bed and the toilet. I mean, you can get that podcast, you know, it still sometimes tries to rear its ugly head in my head. And I'm like, no, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I mean, God runs the show, and I do not. So I wanted to make sure that I do take a step three. Now, um, each and every day, um, that means I'm trusting God with it. So um, uh, then I wanted to make sure on step four um, that we do make a, a a fearless and moral inventory of ourselves. We can't hide from ourselves or our higher power. Um, we face and we have to be rid of these things that have been, you know, blocking us from this power. And that's the base. That's the main thing. We have to make sure that we get rid of all of the things, you know. And I looked forward to step four when I got there because it was sort of like everything's a mess. Let's just turn my whole heart and my will and my mind, because I made the decision in step three, let's just turn it all over, and we'll start fresh anew. And I was really looking, actually, to step four, and my sponsor was like, this is going to take you not long. We're not spending a long time on this. I'm like, great, I'm ready to go. (laughs) Whatever you say, I'm going to do, because I just want release. And I did find release. I found what was blocking me. I found out what a really jerk I had been and still can be, um, you know, then I, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go, you know, and, and it was great because I felt like by the time I got to step five, you know, this shiny new penny, I was confessing all of my uh, so-called sins. I was confessing everything to my sponsor and it was such a release. Um, I just felt like, man, it, it was sort of like this, you know, that weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And I found that the God that I was thinking that I needed, I certainly did. But the God that I wanted God to be was always the God all along. Um, It was just the God that I needed. Um, My sponsor first said, she's like, make God up to where you want it to be. And I'm like, well, isn't that a little sacrilegious? And she's like, no, just try it. And so I listed all the things that I needed God to be. And I found that in him. And it's just been fantastic. It's been a fantastic ride and I feel so much better and I can't wait to like help others. And um, I got this new job and it's been kind of, I haven't been able to take on anybody new, um, but I'm keeping the people that, um, you know, they're working with me and they're working around a new schedule and we just aren't, are all making it work. And the biggest thing is that on page 66, it says, um, but the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. And that really st- stuck out to me uh, working these steps because it's so true. 
I mean, when we fight for our rights, when we fight for our lives that we think we need, or we fight for the job that we think we want, um, it's so futile. (laughs) Because when you get through finally to step 12, I kept feeling like it didn't matter that, you know, I was the drama. I created all the drama. And it also reminded me of one of the greatest statements of hope on page 62. So we see our troubles are of our own making. You know, thank God, because it means that I don't have to wait around for everybody else to change in order for me to be okay. The number one thing I want to tell people is that it's you against you. (laughs) You know, it's your walk with your God that matters. It's your journey with the God of your understanding that matters. As long as I keep sticking and getting close to and not allowing anything to get me off that spiritual beam, um, then I am okay. You know, all those things that I wanted to have control, to be um, my husband to be a certain way, my son to be clean and sober, my daughter to get out of her room, my debts to be paid off. I mean, I thought those were the most important things. And I used food thinking that it was going to give me that control, and it was quite the opposite. In fact, the food was actually not the issue. All those things that I just listed were the real heart of the matter. And I was just trying to use food to correct it. And isn't that insane? You know, it's like, oh, I have like a broken ankle. And so I'm going to go play tennis thinking that will correct it. (laughs) It's like, I'm just going to sit on the couch and thinking that's going to correct it. No, we need to do the work. We need to first set the ankle straight. That's step four. You know, we need to bind the ankle up. We need to do physical therapy. We need to do the work. And that's steps, you know, five through 12. And soon after the work is done, after we put in our footwork, well, gee, our foot is healed, you know, and then we don't even think about our broken ankle, right? I mean, I don't. I don't think about the addiction anymore. I don't, you know, it's not issue. It's a non-issue. And that's a miracle in itself is not to have an issue anymore with, um, with food. And so I think with that, it's just, it's, it's a fantastic life. And I'm so very grateful to be released and to have, you know, freedom um, to go and to help people. Um, I tell people, I, you know, I tell my sponsorees, you know, here's the thing when you get to 10 and 11, a good practice. It says, during the day I practice pausing and asking God for the right thought or action for who he or she would have to be in each situation, remembering that I'm no longer running the show. I continue to take my own inventory as I'm interacting in the world. Step 10 is not about writing. It's about watching how I'm living and treating others. Step 11 is about practicing, trusting, and relying on God in my daily life and nurturing the relationship. Then in the evening, I start with a prayer like the third step. That's why I touched on the third step in the beginning. And then sit quietly for a time. I sit in reflection of my day, how well I have done as we go throughout the day, and any other chosen daily practice. I consider 
you know, page 84, paragraph 2, to page 86, paragraph 1, when we retire. I finish with some silence, and I close with a prayer, like the seven-step prayer. And then again in the morning, I start with a prayer like the third step, and I sit quietly. I sit in reflection of my day. Then I consider page 86 from On Awakening to the end of the chapter of page 88. I consider and do what it asks me to. It is also helpful to, you know, start a meditation practice. I started with one minute a day. (laughs) And the bedevilment on page 52, paragraph 2, as a review, asking God, uh, what God would have me do in each of these areas. I finish with some, you know, some silence, you know, and then I close with a prayer like the seventh, or sometimes I write my own. Um, if you missed anything in the meditation, you do it in the morning. And this is only the beginning. So stay open to what spiritual ideas you can add to this practice. I, um, only I can put a ceiling on my spiritual growth by thinking that what I've gotten is enough for me, and there is resting on my laurels. So with that, I'll pass. Uh, thank you, Steph. That's Stephanie Kay from Missouri. Thank you for your beautiful presentation. And now we're going to transition to our next panelist from New York. We have Lois P. Good morning, Lois. Thank you, Larry. And thank you for moderating today. And thank you, Melanie, for being our foundation rock, always behind the scenes, supporting us. Good morning, dear friends. My name is Lois P, and I'm a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater in New York. If you don't mind, um, I thought a lot about what to say. I prayed about it, and I've written things down. And for me, it's a little bit easier if I just read what I wrote. So I hope you bear with me. So what does freedom isn't free mean to me? Well, we're all familiar with the notion of political, religious, and personal choice freedom. But how is freedom described in the big book? We get our first glimpse when Ebby comes to visit his friend and former drinking buddy, Bill Wilson, where Bill states on page nine, quote, his coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The door opened and he stood there, fresh skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. It was inexplicably different. What had happened? End quote. To my understanding, in my don't-take-it-for-granted recovery, I now recognize that Ebby had found freedom, and not just from alcoholism. It went much deeper, as it has, thank God for me. Before freedom, there must exist some form of bondage, enslavement, captivity, the inability to escape tyranny. But I never thought to use any of these words in relation to my compulsive overeating because the issue was just about food. No big deal. I overate, but I convinced myself I could control it, even have those trigger foods once in a while. I lied to myself and lived in this delusion all the way up to becoming dangerously 100 pounds over a medically healthy body weight. Bondage, enslavement, subjugation. Now I see it, but then no. Here is evidence, perhaps familiar to some of you, of my total powerlessness and therefore bondage from which I could not break free. Getting up in the middle of the night to eat after having a full meal at dinner, buying extra desserts so to eat it before, during, and of course afterwards a family holiday gathering. 
frantically looking for something to eat after an argument, even a disagreement with my husband, my boss, my children, anyone. Eating when I was sad or worried or frankly feeling just about anything. Getting on this scale, knowing I had to lose weight, promising myself to start on Monday only to be 10 pounds at least heavier by the end of the week. On page 14 in the big book, it tells us, quote, our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are without defense against the first drink, end quote. For me, the first bite. And that first bite always, without fail, escalates at some point into an all-out humiliating binge. Even then, I thought I was a free person with only an eating disorder because I thought my problem was only about food. It wasn't. It was how I was dealing with the various experiences that life was presenting. Whenever I felt overwhelmed, nervous, stressed out, worried, tired, angry, sad, disappointed, frustrated, while busy and arrogantly trying to manage my husband, my family members, and everyone else around me, I ate. I was unconsciously bound, enslaved by a compelling need not only to eat, but to feel safe and in control. My reliance was entirely on myself, and compulsive overeating was my fix. Like Bill, I was an overachiever, successful in business, well-regarded in my community. I had a professional husband, nice home, good kids, but hiding underneath was an inner restlessness, an insecurity and discontent that only food could quell, at least for a time being. The misguided, seemingly harmless act of using food as a sedative and often as a reward drove me further and further into inescapable captivity. I was totally unconscious of the fears, the judgments, the resentments that lay just beneath the outer veneer of confidence I sported. These unconscious feelings were the atomic bombs ready to explode when life didn't go my way. And the first person to be destroyed was me, then everyone around me. Though surrounded by family and friends, I harbored a quiet, aching loneliness rooted in the separation from what I now know is the one true source of comfort. Page eight, quote, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity, end quote. Until one day, the pressure of life with me trying to run it, along with a myriad of character defects and flawed ways of thinking, broke me. Exhausted from carrying my life and everyone else's, I emotionally and spiritually collapsed. I gave up on running my own life and cried out, begging God to please take it to take my life and to do with it as God saw fit. I was done. I really was done. The struggle with food and life in general had me beaten. On that fateful day, I was a quivering, sobbing mess of a human being lost in a world I tried so desperately, so unsuccessfully to control. In a very real way, I died that day. Then a miracle occurred. Within days after making a program outreach call, 
a gentle, loving angel entered my life to become my sponsor. And we began the 12 steps that to me has become a stairway to heaven. That day, almost three years ago, I gave up my life and returned it to the source that had given it to me. And I've never taken it back. Page 50 in the big book, quote, in the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they found that a power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction flowed into them, end quote. Bill shares on page eight, quote, I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. End quote. So freedom for me is not free. It's getting my food in order, working with a sponsor through the 12 steps of this program where I learn how to accept life on life's terms, whatever comes, giving up control, living a life of surrender, usefulness to others, and grounded in a humble, devoted relationship with something much greater something much more powerful and grander than myself. The big book, this jewel of a little book, has within it the map that will take you to a place where you will feel safe, loved, and nurtured if you stay on course one day at a time. But be advised, quote, a price has to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness, end quote, page 14. Steps one through nine chisel away our self-centeredness and arrogance. We slowly begin to unravel what has been keeping us down so as to live in steps 10, 11, and 12. A daily step 10 brings light our annoyances, angers, disappointments, resentments, and fears, freeing us of those emotions that block contact with God, the higher power. Then steps 11 and 12 flow easily. So I urge you, please put the food down, work the steps with a sponsor, and move out of your own way. Invite your higher power to return to its rightly position at the center of your life. And you will find this promise on page 55, quote, a spiritual liberation from this world, end quote. Go back to a state of innocence. Let go of the reins. Relax into not knowing. Give up playing God and allow yourself to be guided. The grace and contentment you will experience will eclipse any previous illusion of happiness. This, to me, is the price of real freedom. Give up. I did. Then the greatest treasure will be yours. Thank you so much for listening. And with that, I pass. Lois, thank you so much for your genuine uh, share. We much appreciate it. That was Lois P. from New York. So our next panelist, we have uh, uh, Cheryl A. Uh, Cheryl resides in, in Massachusetts. But don't let her kid you. She knows a little bit about Chicago. Right, Cheryl? Good morning, Cheryl. Hi, Larry. Cheryl, can you hear There you are. I can. Hi, everyone. I do know a little bit about Chicago because I lived there for a bit, but um, it's a good memory. My name is Cheryl A., and I'm a recovered 
compulsive overeater, a really grateful one, uh, living in Brookline, Massachusetts, but currently in Gananoqua, Canada. I did lose my signal once, um, so if I go dark for a minute, just know I'll be calling right back in, but I should be fine. It's been mostly mostly okay. I'm in the middle of the woods. Um, freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free because there's a lot of work involved to getting free that these steps tell us. I want to take you back as I share about my experience and how I have become um, free and and becoming more free on some of the things that have plagued me uh, related to this disease throughout my life beyond my desire to eat food. So the first thing I want to do is take you back to 1979. I lived in Baltimore, Maryland. I am about nine years old. I'm somewhere between eight and nine. I'm trying to remember the exact date that this happened, but I'm on a school bus and I'm sitting next to my identical twin sister and a boy named Gary got up to the front of the bus and did something that affected my life and activated whatever addiction was already there inside of me, unlike anything else, um, certainly at that time in my life. And he got up. And he started to make fun of me and he started to call me fat and he started to cackle. I can still hear his cackle in my mind today. And Gary, for some reason, decided to continue making fun of me and humiliating me for the next three years of my elementary school life. Not my identical twin sister, just me. So why am I sharing the story with you? I'm sharing the story with you because what I did is incredibly important to who I am as an addict today. At the beginning when this happened, I did nothing. I told no one. I did not ask for help. I took the humiliation that came and which continued to plague me throughout the next few years of my life, um, which happened in hallways and in front of classrooms and in lots of different situations. And I took it. And I internalized it. And I um, became the feelings of shame and humiliation and isolation in a way that Gary did not intend. He was a little boy just noticing that an identical twin was a little bit bigger than his sister, than her sister. So the the defect of character that played my life for decades was a profound sense of shame and inadequacy, um, loneliness. And I took that and I began early on in my life to try to use hole that I didn't know couldn't be filled with any other um, substance. It couldn't be filled with accolades. It couldn't have been filled with anything except a process of becoming um, of, of knowing how to come into love and acceptance of myself. I, uh, just a few facts about me. I, at one point, was 80 pounds more than a healthy body weight. At another point, I was about 20 pounds less than a healthy body weight. I've done lots of different things with food to try to fill what ultimately was a sense of shame and inadequacy. And I think that so many of us come into this program wanting so desperately to stop eating And I think that we do everything humanly possible to try to get into a normal body size, 
whichever way we're coming at it. And so much of what we don't always talk about is how this disease has a, it puts so many of us in a state of profound inadequacy that plagues us throughout our lives. And then we stay on the outer level of it, trying to control this substance that we're trying to use to fill it up and take it away. Um, but this, this disease is a disease of my thinking and it's a disease of these profound, overwhelming emotions that I do not know what to do to deal with. So there are some things that I've learned about steps one, two, and three that I want to share briefly before I go into how using four through nine have treated this sense of profound inadequacy, this overwhelming sense throughout my life that I'm not enough, that I'm not good enough, uh, that there's something inherently wrong with me. Because the food and the body weight, eventually, I, I got into a normal body size, and I became someone um, who was not as fully ashamed of the way that I looked and felt in the world. But it took me decades longer to become someone who didn't feel like I was always apart from versus being a part of. So a couple things I've learned about uh, steps one, two, and three, and I'm going to use um, some some ideas from some of the um, some some folks who have been some of the most influential people in developing the steps and influential people on on Bill Wilson. First of all, why do we need to be broken? Why do we need to have a step one? We admitted we were powerless over food and their lives had become unmanageable. There's a um, teacher of mine who says that, and he's not in a 12-step program, but he always says that addicts are some of the most serious people about spirituality that he has ever met. We do not come into this program as a bonus. We do not go to, to, uh, into a 12-step program because we're taking a class to learn more about spirituality. We come into this program on the absolute worst day of our lives, wanting it to stop. We want the madness and the insanity of doing what we can't stop doing to stop. And we come in in the most surrendered place because we're trying to save our lives. We have to have a bottom. The other two speakers spoke about that, and Lois just spoke about the utter and complete despair of that bottom. So we come in here broken. And I learned recently that Carl Jung, and we know Carl Jung um, has had a profound effect on Bill through his experience in treating Roland Hazard. And Roland Hazard was an alcoholic who went to Europe to try and figure out what in the world am I going to do to, to stay sober. And he went and, and by the grace of God, um, got to, to be treated by Carl Jung, not by some of the other leading psychiatrists of the time. So I learned recently, and I don't know if any of you guys know this, but in January of 1961, Bill wrote a letter to Carl Jung thanking him for his impact on AA through his work with Roland Hazard. And the story about what happened um, between Carl Jung and Roland Hazard happened on page 26 and 27, if you want to reference that, in the big book. And 
he thanked him. And then Carl Jung wrote a letter back and said to Bill that he had wondered what had happened to Roland Hazard over all these years. And that there were things that he actually never said to Roland because he didn't think that he would be able to digest the information that Carl Jung had said. Now, we know that Carl Jung um, introduced the idea that some kind of spiritual experience was the only thing that was going to treat an alcoholic of the kind that we knew Roland Hazard was. And so Carl Jung said that he believed there was an utter desire for oneness that human beings have and that addicts take to an extreme when they don't have it by using um, they, by using alcohol, which he said was spiritum. Spiritum, I believe, is the Latin word for um, spirits, for alcohol. But it also is the, one of the Latin words for oneness with God. So there's this misguided sense of using something to do what Carl Jung said is the inherent desire of every human being, which is to be somehow in a, in a sense of oneness. Now, we can all define that however way we want in, in how we come to understand our definition of, of a power greater than ourselves. Um, I thought that was an absolutely amazing idea that he began to elaborate in a letter back to Will Wilson, Bill Wilson about some of the terminology he didn't want to scare Roland Hazard with, but that he used just generally. So we come in in our worst possible day of our lives, broken, and then we begin to get the idea that we must come, um, came to believe that a power greater than me can restore me to sanity because and that is underpinning what we're seeking when we try so hard to fill up the hole with food. And then in step three, we learn we have to go to the most deep level of surrender. And surrender in step three, which is that we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. I learned about surrender from Harry Tebow. Who's Harry Tebow? He was Bill Wilson's psychiatrist. And one of the things that amazed me was some of the observations that this psychiatrist had about what real surrender is in the alcoholic. And surrender, as he observed it, meant that a person completely let go of their former ideas, both consciously and unconsciously, and when that surrender happened, which happens when we are in so much pain, we can't take it any longer, there's a relaxation response, which immediately leads to this conversion process and a state of mind that allows an individual to take actions. Now, I know this to be true because I know that there are different parts of our brain. There's an inner part of our brain, which is our amygdala, which is where so many of us addicts live, and we're stuck in this constant Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm in so much pain. I can't bear it anymore. I can't stop eating. I am in so much loneliness. I'm in so much pain. I'm in so inadequate. I don't feel a part of. I feel separate from. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I live in that place. There's another part of our brain that if I can access it, and I believe that that's what for through the rest of the steps allow us, we can begin to access a sense beyond that fear, that debilitating, unbelievable 
fear. So I learned one, two, and three must happen for me to surrender, for me to be able to trigger this relaxation that can create what Harry Tebow, the psychiatrist of Bill Wilson said is this ability to then turn to a more positive state. And it is only when then when I have hope, because step three brings me to hope. Step two brings me to hope. And when I am in hope, it's what happens when we hear in Bill's story where he is ready to jump out the window. He's doing everything he can from doing that to all of a sudden being open and willing, being hopeful. When he talks to Ebby um, and he starts to, what we just read about the last, the last couple of days and um, during the week in vision where he starts to hear him a little differently. He sees that he's, he, he, his roots have got new soil. There's something happening. And all of a sudden, Bill has hope. Okay. So now we move into um, steps, the steps, the, 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 the soul surgery that is necessary. So how did I go from that little girl who was being humiliated in the halls of my school for years upon years to a woman who is now completely intolerant? I am intolerant today of shame. I am intolerant today of thinking I am less than. Do I still feel less than sometimes? I do. Do I still feel a sense of humiliation and embarrassment and fear? I do. And yet I know today that I am intolerant of those things because I have a kind of self-love today that tells me I do not need to be defined by those boogeymen in my mind. So I know I only have a few minutes more, uh, but I'm going to try to get through this quickly. In steps four and five, we begin to um, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and then we turn it over to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, and we look at the exact nature of our wrongs. If I just start at the beginning of program from that early surrender in steps one, two, and three, to then start um, doing all those things so many of us try to do to control not eating, dieting or classes or workshops or treatments or whatever it is, all that stuff I did for so many years. I'm coming in, I'm not coming in downstream enough. I've learned that I've got to go to the level of my beliefs because they come before my thoughts. My thoughts come before my words. My words come before my actions. My actions come before my habits and my habits come before what I value and that is what determines my life. So by doing step four and taking a look at my resentments, my sex inventory, my relationships, and my fears, I begin to go all the way downstream to what do I believe? Because see, early on, I was the little girl who believed something was wrong with me because someone else made fun of me. So I've got to go to the level of beliefs. So I worked steps four through nine, and I took a look at my fears, and I learned as I, uh, I'm sorry, I took a look at my resentments first and learned ultimately that my fear is really what drove it all. My fear drove my delusions, complete delusions and dishonesty, which drove my self, my utter selfishness to try and control everybody out there so that I could feel okay in here. And that drove my self-seeking behaviors and all the junk that I would do to try to uh, manage other people. And in my inventory and relationships, I had to take a look at what are my beliefs about my relationships and how I function 
and in my fears. What were my fears? How were they manifesting in my behavior and my beliefs? And by doing all of that, I got to look at and see underneath, oh my gosh, what I believe is driving me to do such terrible things. And guess what? The food's been gone a long time. But I don't want to be enslaved anymore by shame, by inadequacy, by fear, by not enoughness, by not serving my purpose in the world. I don't want to do that anymore. Putting the food down is the beginning, but I don't want the enslavement. I do want that freedom. So I did that work. In step six and seven, and I'll tell you guys, this has only been a recent learning. I've learned that in six and seven, I have still been hanging on to my control, doing whack-a-mole. My character defects would pop up, and I'd whack it down. Another character defect would pop up, and I'd whack it down. Another character defect would pop up, and I'd whack it down. But I've learned in the, my most recent iteration of steps six and seven that my job is not, is not, to control away the defect of character or the philosophy of mind that doesn't serve me. Only God can remove the branch. If I am um, sitting up at my off, in my office looking down, I'm my, my little office in my house is on my third floor, and I look down at the road, and, and there is a tree in front of our house. And the, if the branches grow and obstruct my view, and I, every year I cut the branch, and I cut the branch, and I cut the branch, and I cut the branch, but the branch keeps growing back, and it keeps growing back. Well, one day the city came along and completely uplifted the whole tree. Now my whole view is clear. I couldn't uplift the tree. That's the process of, uh, of what God does. I become willing to say, please remove this tree. And then the city comes along and takes it away. That's, that's step seven. So I know that my job, when my life is in shambles, and there is a complete chasm between what I should be and what I actually um, what I actually am, and it's so vast I can't see how I can change anything, I now stop and realize that is my higher power's job. My job is good thoughts. My job is good deeds. And then God will make a bridge from my thoughts to my deeds, and together I will then become someone who can be of service in the world. That is step six and seven again. I become willing, and God removes, and we know that these things have to be removed from the root. Making amends was an incredibly important process. I've made direct amends, but I'll tell you what. I learned that if I make all my direct amends and I'm still behaving in all of the ways towards the people that I hurt in the same way that I used to, there is a point in time where direct amends are not what's needed anymore for me. What's needed is a complete and total change. And if I'm not changed yet there is something earlier on that I've got to go shore up in my foundation in one of the other steps today I strive for essence that which is most important I don't need to pack so much in today I've learned I'm too comprehensive in the time that's allowed I know today that I need to simplify I've got too much stuff in my head too many thoughts too long a list Today, I know I need to prioritize and let God tell me what to do. I'm full today. No more, less is, less is better, except for sleep, by the way, I've learned. I've learned today that I enrich the universe just by being me. It's enough. 
It's not my mission to kind of save every single part of the world either. It's an impossible task. But my overdoing and overbeing drive me to do more and more and more and more and more. Just like I used to eat more and more and more and more and more. I'm additive over time. And all the people I influence will carry my torch one day. And they'll pay it forward one day at a time. Today I focus on my character strengths, faith, trust, self-love, self-encouragement, discipline, beauty, rigorous honesty, and grit. That's what I learned about what I have to focus on versus my character defects and the behaviors related to those things. Prayer, meditation, quiet time planning, writing, journaling, body movement, creative endeavors, learning, and tuning my engine well. Freedom is not free, but it comes. It absolutely comes. The last thing I will say, and I will end with this, there's a story of a workaholic whose child at six years old came in to say, hey, Daddy, would you please play with me? And the workaholic father was like, oh, my gosh, I have so much to do. I have so much to do. So he saw a magazine next to him, and it was filled with a map of the world on top. And he thought, I'm just going to rip this up into a million different pieces, give it to my child, and let them put it back together like a puzzle. They have to figure out now this child is about six years old. So how is a child of six years old going to know how to put the map of the world together? So the child goes off and puts the whole map of the world back together. And he comes in without much time um, having done that task. The father's like, what? How did you do that so quickly? He's thinking, my gosh, I have a genius of a child, but how? It's not possible. He doesn't know the reconfiguration of the world. So we asked his son, how did you do that? And his son said, well, on the other side, of that magazine page was a picture of a man. So I knew how to put the face of a man together. And the father thought, my gosh, you put together the human being and the whole world falls right into place. That is my experience of what these 12 steps do. I don't know how to put together the map of the world. I don't. But God knows. And so I have to put the human being, the woman, together so that never again will I be on a school bus or any other bus and allow myself to be humiliated and shamed because of what one little boy said triggered in an addiction that plagued me for decades. I love these steps, and if they're worked, we get freedom. And the freedom isn't free part. is that we just have some things we have to do. Our, our job is good thoughts and good deeds, and the miracles come. And with that, I will pass. Uh, thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you for your, your insightful and, and heartwarming uh, share. And uh, so now we're going to – let's transition to uh, questions and answers, to a Q&A period. If you have a question uh, for our panelists, uh, individually or collectively, um, I'm going to ask for your name in a moment just to let you know. And, again, uh, thank you. We had Stephanie K. was our first panelist. We had Lois P. and then Cheryl A. So please, if you have a question, press star one to unmute and give me your first name and last initial. Marcia. Marcia D. Marcia. Loretta H. Loretta. I have Marcia Diane and Loretta Pete. so far. Diane. Dana P. Dana. Who else? Anybody? 
Toby L. And we have Toby. Because we have these ladies for the next five hours, so. Danielle J. Was that, who is that? Danielle J. Danielle, okay. All right, here's who I have for this first round. We have uh, Marsha, Loretta, Diane, Dana, Toby, and Danielle. Anybody else? Okay, let's start with Marsha, followed by Loretta. Questions only, please. Marsha, good morning. Marsha, press star one. Good morning. Yes, hello. There this is Marsha D in Ohio. Yeah, thank you, everyone. The wonderful shares and inspiration and good reminders. Um, I wanted to ask, I believe it was Willis P, that she talked about nighttime meeting, which I find is a, a lesser known manifestation of our disease. How did uh, you specifically begin your process to overcome the nighttime eating cycle? Thank you. Hi, uh, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, I was beleaguered by that uh, because it was just part of my grazing mentality. You know, I was eating whenever I wanted to eat. So eating at night was no big deal to me. So how it ended was I really, when I, when I came to the point where I couldn't go any further in my life trying to manage my food, I really did surrender my food. And by that I mean, you know, I committed a healthy plan to a sponsor. Um, it included really good quality food plus um, a snack, a healthy snack. And I committed that I would not eat beyond that. I would have only my three meals. There'd be four hours in between each. And when I had my snack, that was it. And I just stopped. But quickly, the thing that really changed it for me was that I offered that food to God. I offered my food um, as, as a gift that was given to me, but I wanted to give it back to God. And so I knew that when I had my meals and I had that healthy snack, this was enough. This was enough. So, you know, making it a spiritual practice helped me tremendously. So thank you. I hope that helped. Thanks for the question, Marsha. Okay, let's uh, go over to Loretta. Good morning, Loretta. Good morning, Larry, and everybody who is saving my life today. And the speakers, thank you, thank you again for your service. Uh, Loretta H. and Raleigh recovered. Um, Cheryl, your story was my story, and I love the word essence because I believe I'm, I'm seeing God's face in your share and that you radiate that essence. How do you, on a daily basis, do your practice to internalize that essence so that you bring it out in your daily activities? Hi. Oh, can you guys hear me? Did, we can. Did, did you not hear me? Okay, there we go. I think I'm. I think I'm clear now. Right, Larry? Yeah, we can hear you okay. well uh, at this point, Perfect. Cheryl. 
Okay. Thank you so much for that question. Um, I think it actually is the crux of it all, which is what I do, what each of us does every single day. The first thing is that I absolutely have internalized the concept that what I did yesterday does not count for today. I don't know why it is. I wish we had a process by which like some pills you take once a week or some treatments you get once a week, you go to physical therapy once or twice a week and that's all you need. Not so with this disease, with this disease, I have to renew every single solitary day of my life, a combination of actions and activities that um, treat the thinking that will eventually cause me to, to take physical negative actions to fill that utter bottomless pit inside. So every single day, um, I know that there are practices that have to happen. I get up in the morning and I um, am now in a process of doing a minimum amount of prayer, meditation, um, reading, writing. So reading, 12-step literature and writing on it, um, speaking to my sponsor, speaking to my sponsees. The practice probably in recent times, and this is what our step tells us that has had the most impact on me, to be able to make that essence grow larger and larger, to be infused throughout my day so that in the 11th step where it says it becomes a working part of our mind where we intuit what to do next and what to say and how to be, is the 11th step, finding new ways, seeking out how to enlarge my relationship with my higher power. I am doing that through sitting quietly and constantly calming myself down and doing that pause that we're required to do both in step 10 and in step 11. When anything comes up, I got to quiet it down because if I don't, the disease of that dis distorted thinking will come right out of my basement, get released, and I won't even know it's infecting my mind. So I am constantly today pausing at irritation. I am pausing. I'm not allowing it to be interwoven through my thinking so that I'm lost. I think the pause and the discipline, my God, whoever would think that I would become a disciplined person who but guess what? I am because I am committing to other people what my actions need to be so that God can then come in and pull up that root of that yuck and take it away with the branches. And I don't have to keep cutting them away. Pausing consistency with what our steps tell us need to need, need to be done in 10, 11, and 12, going deeper with, um, with four and five, if need be to constantly be going back renewing my relationship and sitting quietly with deep, deep pause and finding new ways to enlarge my relationship with God. I hope that answers your question. Thanks so much for the question, Loretta. Okay. Next up we have Diane G followed by Dana P. Diane, good morning. Hi there. I'm Diane G a compulsive overeater from Canada. And thank you all for your sharing. And my question is directed to Cheryl. Um, Cheryl, you said you said something about feeling less than. And so my question is, as a recovered compulsive overeater, 
when does my opinion actually matter? And I'd like to give you an example. If I would be with you, Cheryl, and you said you'd like blue, well, then I like blue. But if I was with Larry and he said he hated blue, then I'd agree with him too. Like, I always agreed with what anybody said, but deep down, I like purple. So, at what, as, as a recovering compulsive overeater, I've gained some confidence. And do I not have a right to express my opinion without uh, offending somebody and feeling I owe them an apology? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> First of all, you're talking to an identical twin, let alone uh, a compulsive overeater. So um, trying to d- discern who is the real Cheryl in there throughout my life has been a lifelong um, um, process. What I've learned through the steps is that I need to stop doing calculus and physics over who I am, what is okay, what, um, who I have to please, um, how I have to be in the room with others. Part of this disease is one of profound disconnection from a, for me anyway, from being able to be in a group and feel a part of. So then my default behaviors would be to try to please, 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 let me just please you and then maybe you'll like me. Let me please you and maybe I'll feel a part of. And so I would do that also by trying to, if you like this, then I like this. If you didn't like this, then I like this. Or if I felt some deep sense of a real opinion, whoa, was I scared to say it because, my gosh, if you didn't like me, whoa, that's about, that's like going back for me to like third grade when Gary made fun of me in the, on the school bus. It's like that. It triggers that sense of shame, humiliation. Do I have a right to be who I am today? You bet. I don't have to be any less than, and I don't have, I don't, I know today I don't need to be more than in order to be okay inside. But that is a process of uncovering that happens to me, not as a result of the calculus and physics I do in my head to figure it out. My sponsor's constantly telling me, stop thinking, stop thinking, just stop your thinking, take the next right action. And so what happens in that um, 11-step process is that once we, you know, it says, let's see, it says on, um, it's, well, the page I just opened up, so let me just read something from here. It's page 77, okay? And it says at the top, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So my job is to focus on that. And in the process of cleaning out my gunk underneath the rug and in the process of, um, of doing my part as God removes the defects of character, and when that film over my eyes all goes away and I'm rooted in God versus rooting in you trying, trying to please you, and then I start focusing on being of service, that intuitive sense about who I am and the confidence associated with it just comes it happens to me not by me it happens to me I don't have to try I gotta let it happen and yes I have a right and you have a right to own your own opinions and yes we have a right to be our creative selves in the world I believe that's what God wants of me to create go create with him co-create do I like to play piano do I like to write do I like to speak whatever be who that person is And so it's a process of uncovering by taking the actions, not 
thinking it through. I'll stop there. Thanks for the question, Diane. Okay, next up we have Dana followed by Toby. Dana, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Thank you for your service and everyone on the line and the beautiful um, uh, talks today. I, I, my question is uh, directed to Cheryl. Um, can really relate to what you said about six and seven and eight and nine, Cheryl. And, um, funny when you said t- talked about the city coming and taking the tree. Uh, I went. I gasped. Uh, have a thing about trees. Uh, definitely in my fourth step and to the question, sorry. Um, I'm wondering if what came to me was, oh, my God, and did you grieve the tree? Uh, I know that uh, for me, the six and seven, and I've learned that they serve a purpose um, in protecting me in many ways. And so I'm wondering how that is for you around the, um, the defects of character in terms of once God has removed them, which amazingly he does, and I'm seeing that. But if there was a grieving process that you went through with that, um, I'll pass if that question makes sense. It does make sense, and I'm going to answer it um, briefly, and I want to see the other panelists, um, how you've experienced this too. So I'm going to open it up to you to just to see, to collaborate together on this answer. But yes, huge grieving process in some senses. And, um, and here's the way that I, that I think about that. Sometimes we, life breaks us. And, and there's this sense that these defects of character, we somehow get wired that they protect us from that breaking and that we, we can't live without them. And, or I will somehow be exposed if that defect isn't there. The process of the 12 steps has allowed me to realize that I am here to be, remember what Carl Jung said in that letter back, to be just sort of connected in oneness and beauty, but that I can't control it. I didn't control that that tree was there. I didn't control that it was removed. And it's hard and scary. So now, um, as hurt brushes near me, I imagine sitting in front of that tree. Let's call it an apple tree. I imagine sitting in front of that apple tree and listening to the apples fall around me in heaps. But this time I allowed their sweetness to be wasted because I've tasted as many of them as I could. That concept in life is, it's, 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 I, I don't want to agree that I couldn't gather up more apples anymore. I just want to gather up my part and trust, but the grieving must be there. I'm going to stop because I'll keep going and going. Um, Stephanie and Lois, I'm curious about your own um, process also of grieving with those things that we have to let go of. Hi, uh, this is Lois. Um, Yes, I love what you just said, Stephanie. We cannot and should not protect ourselves or hide or run from the feelings that life is going to present. Grief is real because love is profoundly real. And when we love with our heart and our whole being and we lose someone or something, it breaks us. But you know what? It breaks us open to a greater 
connection to everything that lives. So crying, sobbing, feeling just heartbroken is something not to be avoided. It is to be lived fully and not to be eaten over or, you know, covered over or run from, at least in my experience, because that breaking open is the doorway to something so much greater in your own self. So trust it. If, you, if you're grieving, it's because you've loved something and someone dearly. Treasure it, honor it. And as Cheryl, you just said, just remember the sweetness of the times together. With that, I'll pass. Thanks, Lois. Stephanie, did you have anything to add on that? I do. What a great question. Um, one thing I've learned about grief is that you have to go through it. You can't go around it. You can't warm your way, you know, and grieve how you want to grieve. Um, one thing about working these 12 steps is if God is totally in control, if he's control over everything, then he's control of every single atom in this universe. Otherwise, he's not God. And that means that I fall underneath that. Um, I had to grieve my son. Um, he did not die. He's doing great now. But I had to grieve the hopes and dreams and aspirations I had for him, right? Because if you're a control freak, you've got your whole life planned out and the lives of everybody else around you. And so I had to give those up. And it was like a hard-fought battle between God and I. You know, I felt like, well, I'm just going to give up. And it turned out to be good for Greg, but I still thought, you know, he needed to be, my son needed to be this star pitcher and a a wonderful musician and, you know, but it's not very um, realistic, you know, and I realized that, you know what, it's not my son, it's God's son first and everything under heaven is God's. And so I'm basically, my attitude now is I am living in this world just to serve a higher power. Um, to give glory to that higher power, to do what I can, as Cheryl said, you know, to um, be of maximum service to our God. And um, that's what I live for. And it's so much more freeing um, because I don't have to worry about outcome and nor am I trying to control outcome anymore. And I'm able to just wake up in the morning and say, okay, God, here I am. Uh, Send me to do your bidding. Um, You know, help me to just remove the the bondage of self. You know, that's a daily prayer for me. And so, um, yeah, I go in and out of the day um, constantly praying that God show me direction. And it's okay to grieve. And sometimes we need our, our defects to be in our lives, to still be there because they're serving others. And then when that defect is removed by God, oh, my gosh, the vision is different. You may find another aspirate uh, aspect of that defect or you might have just a different vision of life and um, it was like on my front porch um, there was a tree and it was so funny because I was going through a hard time in the branches of this tree circled around the stop sign at the top of my hill and it circled around the, my vision as I looked through the branches of the tree the stop sign said stop and I went oh stop. And I'm like, yes, I need to stop this. I need to stop that. Thank thank you, God. And then the next season, like three months later, our neighbors cut down the branches and I could no longer see the stop sign, you know, enveloped with the branches in my vision from my porch. And I went, wow, 
isn't that amazing how God arranged that point in time for me to see and for the branches to surround the stop sign? That's the God we serve. I mean, isn't that amazing? And then now I look at it and I just look at the stop sign at the top of the of my hill and I, I just laugh because I'm like, thank you, God, for arranging that. And now my vision's so different as I look up the top of my hill. And there's more things to look at. And there's more things that, you know, because that branch, those branches blocked my vision to the rest of the street, now I'm able to see clearly what else needs to be done that God would have me do. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thanks to our panelists for the answers and Dana uh, P for the question. Next up is Toby followed by Danielle. Toby, good morning. Toby, press star one. Thank you. Hi, this is Toby. Um, this is just a quick question for Cheryl. Um, I heard her say something about thoughts leading to values and values leading to actions, but it was a whole list and it was so long I couldn't quite grasp it. And I wanted to um, ask you, Cheryl, to repeat it cause, so I could ponder it later. I'm sure I've seen it before, but I just can't remember what it was. Sure. It's, it's, it's my pleasure. And it's, it's, I didn't come up with this and you can certainly call me after and I can tell you where it comes from, but it, um, it's beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values and your values become your destiny, your, your, your life. And just one comment is that I believe that so many of us try to start changing and transforming ourselves by going right to our actions and our habits. And I think the beauty and power of a 12 step process is that it takes us back to our beliefs. That step four um, through nine process is we go we go way to the beginning of this of this stream, and that's why we transform where a lot of times other people do not. Thanks for the question, Toby. Okay, next up we have Danielle. Danielle, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much, Larry, and for thank you to everyone. Um, Danielle from Washington State. Um, I wanted to know, Cheryl, please, um, were you ever able to get out of the victim role in your school age years, or did that not come till program? Thank you. Um, there have been traumas I've had in my life. I lost a full-term baby. I lost four more pregnancies after that. A year ago, I lost my 20-year-old nephew, and I've lost four additional friends in their early 50s this last year. I left my job in 2001 on August of 31st, 2001, right before I was supposed to be assigned out of uh, New York in a, in a, at a company in the World Trade Center, and we lost two, two people. Um, there are traumas that I've had, and I did certain interventions, and... And today, while they were traumas, and I have certain levels of fear that I constantly have to treat, those traumas were all things that are really validated as real traumas. 
they're just obvious, right? The childhood victimhood part I never validated until, honestly, the last couple of years and through this 12-step program. I, I really didn't. I, in fact, downplayed that that bullying was like I wasn't raped and I wasn't physically abused. And there's a lot of reasons I thought this is just like a normal part of childhood. And I've learned, no, it was not. And it was one of the most fundamental activating um, parts to what I believe was a, was the addict inside of me that was there before even that, that happened. But it was only through a spiritual process, through the process of these 12 steps where it tells us that we become rearranged inside. We grasp new soil. It is only through this spiritual experience. Well, I have had a couple of spiritual experiences, but I won't go into that right now. But it's through the process of the spiritual awakening that I um, was even able to identify that I was a victim and how that's plagued me throughout my life and treat it so that when I start getting into that victimhood mentality, I have these steps and fellows and my own little board of of people who I go to when I'm, my, my thinking is faulty to be able to recognize so that I can have victimhood without becoming victimhood. And so, yeah, the, the, it was only through the process of these steps that I was really able to um, begin to recover and get rearranged around that part of my identity. Thanks so much, Danielle, for the question. So I'm just going to open it up for if there is um, perhaps two or three more uh, questions. Uh, please give me your first name and last initial. Kathy Jo. for our panelists. Kathy Jo. Elaine T.R. Elaine. How about one more if we have it? Joanne okay. L. All right, Joanne. Let's wrap up with Joanne then. So we'll start with uh, Kathy Jo P. Followed by Elaine. Kathy Jo, good morning. Abigail, Richardson. thank you. Thank you, Larry. This is Kathy Jo P. in Minneapolis. Happy to be here. And the question I have is for Cheryl. And Cheryl, you talked about the moment on the bus where your disease got activated. And I would just like to hear you talk a little bit more about how we live in the solution rather than focusing on how the ball got rolling with our disease. Thanks. Oh, my goodness. Um, Stephanie and Lois, let's work on this together also. Um, I... Um, you know, remember I talked about how that what Harry Tebro, Bill's psychiatrist, said happens and he observed in the, the process of recovery for addicts. He observed that there was a conversion process that happened when we surrender and there's an immediate sense of relaxation. And then we begin this, what, what he observed, you don't understand it. We experience it because we know what's happening we begin to stop focusing on the problem, 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 and we begin to focus on directions. 
that bring about something that happens to us, not by us. And so um, it's something in what he observed and didn't understand that happens in this awakening as we begin to stop trying to play God. And I keep my focus on a set of actions that I'm told will bring about a set of promises in this big book. And I just take those actions. You know, sometimes it's like if you're in a field and there's flowers and there's trees and there's grass and there's beautiful sky and sun, but I'm just focused on the bee and it's buzzing in my ear and it's buzzing and it's buzzing and it's buzzing and it's buzzing. Sometimes I just have to turn my head to the flowers. I have to let the bee buzz, but I'm not, I'm not giving it all of me. I don't want to become one with the buzz. <laughs> I focus on the flowers and that I, 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 you know, there's other people that enter the field and I, 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 I start to talk to them and it's buzzing back there, but I just let it buzz. So sometimes I just let it buzz, but I'm told through instructions. I don't have to figure it out what to do in any situation to get my orientation towards the solution and not the problem. And I guess just practice, 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 practice. Lois and Stephanie, any thoughts? Hi, this is Steph. Can you hear me? I can, Steph. You bet. Go right ahead. Okay, great. Um, I'm thinking for me, it happened in step nine. I realized when the step nine promises, if we are painstakingly about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. I'm reading at the bottom of page 83. Um, you know, we will not regret the past, nor we wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity. We will know a new peace. Um, I realized working through step nine at the time, how much food was really an addiction. Uh, for me, it started when I was six years old. Um, I was constantly eating sugar, you know, everything. My family, I come from a long line of um, either alcoholics or food addicts. Um, I grew up in a household of four adults. My grandparents lived with me and my mom and dad. And all four of them were just, they were food addicts. And so I think I just kind of was born with it. <laughs> I don't know. But it really solidified when I was six. By the time I was six, I was already into that diet club mentality. I was doing sit-ups because I had a kid in kindergarten um, say in front of the whole gym class that I was I looked pregnant. Um, so yeah, we all have these childhood traumas and I understand those totally. Um, I kind of go back and I look at that and the kid was named DeMarco and I was like, you know, when I went through the process of the 12 steps, I really thank God for DeMarco because really, um, he was there to serve a purpose and the purpose was that, you know, it could have been the beginning of my recovery, even at age six. Now it took a long time for me to get there. But I recovered at age 47, and then um, I'm 52 now. So, I mean, it does take a while. Um, but that's up to you, up to God to bring me through that. You know, I thank God even for our son's addictions or his struggles because that helped me to live in the solution too. There's nothing like having a, a kid and then yourself 
be an addict and that just brings you to your knees. And I don't know why we have to have that painful experience like Cheryl touched on. But um, for me, I, I thank God for all of it um, because I would not be here today if it hadn't been for all those things. And as you go through those promises and they start living, being lived out in you, that is really God's work. That's God's turf. And my job each and every day is just to make sure that I practice pages 86 through 87, 88, and 89 and that I'm just showing up and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing every day. I don't worry about the outcome. I don't worry about how the day is going to go. I don't really stress about anything else in my life. I used to have horrendous anxiety attacks. I haven't had an anxiety attack in about five years now. Um, and so when I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the stream of life um, and leaving everything else up to God, it's a really wonderful life. There's no anxiety. There's no worry. Um, there's no financial insecurity. I mean, even in today's day, you know, I don't worry about where what my 401k is doing. It's probably a 201b. I mean, you know, it's half. Um, I don't worry about that stuff because everything belongs to God, including me, and he's got it worked out. I mean, he has proven to me time and time and time and time again that he has got this and that he has got my back. But it's not all about me either. Um, I see him constantly taking care of people all around me, um, even through this two and a half years of this pandemic. Um, it was a very sad time. I lost like 13 people to COVID. And 2020 was topped off by my best friend dying. And it started with one of my other best friends dying. And so, um, you know, I can look back and just be distraught over all of that. But as we're living in the solution, you know, we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. It's one huge thing that I one promise. And then this is the greatest promise. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what he could not do for ourselves, what we could not do for ourselves. Man, that's every day. I mean, I, as you go through and review and I call it debrief the day, um, I realize, man, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done this. I couldn't have done that. Um, and I, it, it fosters such more, how much more gratitude I have. And that gratitude just seems like, man, it can't keep growing, but it does. And I'm sometimes I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I, I, I can't get any more from you, God. And he gives me more. And I'm like, how can I give back? And I can't seem to give back enough. And it's just such a wonderful, um, it's such a wonderful life. And with that, I'll pass. Oh, thanks so much. You know, in the interest of time, because we're, we're paying our panelists by the hour here, so we got to – let's move on to our question from Elaine. Elaine, good morning. Elaine, press star one. Good morning. Um, thank you to all three speakers, and I'm not sure which one of you talked about it, but one of you mentioned nighttime eating. And I'm finding that that's an issue for me. And I'm wondering if I handle that with the 10th step or how do I deal with that in a way that is helpful to my program? Because I've gone through the steps twice already and I'm at the point where I want to start sponsoring people, but then I get into this nighttime eating. So thank you. That's my question. How do I deal yeah. with it? That, that was clear. Lois, um, you had mentioned about nighttime eating. Would you like to take that? Yes, I'll answer that very quickly. Thanks for the question. Yeah, 
um, it, again, it comes, it comes down to, for me, really making a commitment. I commit it, you commit it, you honor it, you promise it to God, I will not eat after my meal, whether it's your last meal is a snack or whether it's your dinner. So it really is about, I think, for me, like a humbling uh, experience to just make that commitment to yourself. To offer your food to God has been a great help to me so that I don't take it back. So when you offer your food every day, each meal, I'm not going to take it back. I'm just not because it's no longer mine. So that's that's what worked for me. Hope that's helpful. Thank you, Lois. Okay, and our final question uh, question today will come from Joanne. Joanne, good morning. Thank you, Larry. Uh, This is Joanne L. from Ohio. My question is for uh, Cheryl. You, I wondered if you'd be willing to. Um, repeat, you had a quite a number of um, character attributes or assets and then character defects, and um, I wondered if you'd be willing to repeat those. Sure. Um, I actually focused on character strengths that I focus on today. They were born out of... Um, the 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 revelation that came to me about you know the defects that came from the the process of the fourth step and i began to try to look at the opposite of those and realized that the core strengths um that i focus on today are faith trust self-love self-encouragement discipline beauty, rigorous honesty, and grit. I'd like to say that the magical strength that I nurture more probably than anything is self-love. Most of what comes up, I go to self-love because there's so much that came up in my fourth step about people not following my script Um, about things happening, jealousies or envies that I had um, that had nothing to do with anything anybody ever did to me. It had to do with someone's pure existence, um, and they represented something that I felt I didn't have, and so I felt jealous or envious. I have felt self-love, the actions of self-love to be one of the most magical um, uh, character strengths to, to nurture. The behaviors uh, associated with nurturing, the actions that I, I look to take to bring about a stronger sense of character in those areas is prayer meditation, quiet time. And I, the prayer meditation I focus on is really about what the big book talks about um, in step 11. And Quiet time is, is, is even broader than that, where I am making sure there is enough time more and more that I'm not filling up over and over again with my controlling activities to make things better in my life. So prayer, meditation, quiet time, planning, I have to have good orderly direction. And it says in our 11th step that we need, we, you know, we consider our plans for the day with God. So I know I have to have a plan um, I have to know 
time is something that I have abused over and over in my life. And so I, I counteract just like I abused food. I abused time. So I have to have a plan for the day. Um, so prayer, meditation, quiet time, planning, journaling, and writing, uh, body movement and care, creative endeavors, like learning new things. I've learned I love to draw, even down to things like decorating my home, you know, like just anything creative is a, is a behavior that nurtures that part of me that, um, that I never really explored as a young child. Uh, learning and tuning my engine well. When I talk about tuning my engine, I am an engine that idles all the time. Idle, 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 idle. And what we know about cars is if we do not tune the engine, we burn out. So I have to tune my engine well. It's a behavior to nurture those other strengths that I talked about. Those are my lists. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful end. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And, and thank you again to all our panelists uh, for your gener generosity of your time this morning, to Stephanie K. from Missouri, Lois P. from New York, and Cheryl A. from Mass. Uh, so we will now, let me give you the share ID for today's special edition presentation. That number is 19,132. That's 19132. We're going to close from, a page, from page 164. It's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. And then we'll, we'll see if our panelists will give us uh, their contact information uh, following the, the end of the recording. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.